Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast. I'm Josiah. And I'm Jessica. We were missionaries for seven years. Until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical. And I'm an agnostic. And we are deconstructing. And reconstructing together. Listen to some of our key episodes, such as Deconstructing Together, Domestic Abuse, I'm a Survivor. The Cult of ATI, Part 1 and 2, and Dehumanized by Purity Culture. Join us on our journey as we seek health together. together. So today with us, we have Tia. I'm so excited to have you with us today. Um, when I came across your Instagram uh, profile, I guess it's called, I just loved it. I was so excited. <laughs> I just felt that connection, um, a lot of similar stories. And I was like, oh, we need to have you come on our podcast just because it really... Not that it's an exciting topic to talk about going no contact and um, parents, <laughs> but it it's a very important topic because there's so many of us that found our, find ourselves in that situation and we're taught from such a young age that family is family, blood is thicker than anything and you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not the truth. <laughs> You're an adult now and you have a choice. You've survived. Now you have options. Um, and it's something that we're pretty passionate about. And we've talked about quite a bit in our podcast um, because it's our personal story as well. The no contact on Josiah's side and low contact on my side. Um, so, yes, welcome to our podcast. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Can't wait to, to chat. And it's like you said, it's not a happy topic to talk about. But what I've noticed early on is that there are so many survivors out there that just don't feel safe telling their story because there are so few spaces for us to be able to do that and not feel you know, ostracized or not have people question the validity of our stories because we can't point to you know, physical abuse and, and things like that. So I really prided myself, one, on just being transparent because I want people to know they're not alone um, because I feel like that isolation is absolutely a tool of our abusers. They like to do that. Yeah. There's very much a, what happens in this house stays in this house. Yeah, don't yeah. talk about it. And that's, you know, the reason why a lot of people don't seek therapy and don't seek support groups and things like that, because they feel like they can't. So yeah. I created my space and it always makes me super excited. I get tons of people who come in my DMs and say like, hey, thank you so much for this space. Mm-hmm. I really needed this. Um, and it's just really affirming, reaffirming to me that I did the right thing because I was looking for a space like this and couldn't yeah, find yeah. it. And so it was just like, okay, I'm going to create it. Yeah, so, that's yeah, awesome. It was, it was really cool. It's always cool meeting other survivors just because, you know, it's nice to know that you're not alone. Yeah. Yep. And that's, yeah, happy is not the right title, but there is something exciting about finding somebody else that understands narcissism. It's like <laughs> when you get diagnosed with something that has been a chronic problem your whole life and finally you get the diagnosis and there is actually a treatment for it treatment is called mm-hmm. no contact and <laughs> yes, all of a sudden yes <laughs> you know you find this layer of health and this new person emerges with from within you and it's it's so wonderful to meet the new you without the narcissist toxicity and yes. when somebody understands that journey and resonates with it and is not going to try and um, hold you back in that journey or disparage mm-hmm. it or say oh are you sure uh, it's it is an exciting moment so mm-hmm. thanks for coming on the podcast. I'd love to just no hear. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start off by just hearing more of your story. What? Okay, cool. Um, so I have been no contact. This year will be eight years. 
Um, I like to say that the thing that really um, started off my no contact journey and really planted that seed for me to go, you know, low contact first and then no contact was the birth of my first child. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in the hospital. Um, he had really low blood sugar. He was premature. So they, I had him at like three, but he wasn't brought to me in the room until like nine, nine thirty ish. And he's just so tiny. And I remember holding him in my arms and thinking I could never say or do the things to him that were done to me. Mm-hmm. And it's because for the longest time I justified my abuse as since my mom was my primary abuser, it's a part of motherhood that I just won't understand until I became a mom. So I would tell myself like, and reason with myself that, okay, she's not just treating me badly. This is just what moms do. And I don't understand, you know, this tension that's happening because I'm not a mom. So when I became a mom, I just remember being, you know, obviously overwhelmed with those hormones that you have postpartum, but then just grief, just almost immediate grief of, I love this baby so much and I could never treat him this way. And knowing that that meant that there was a disconnect in the way that my parents loved me. And I'll talk about this more when we go into deconstructing, but it also presents a really interesting tension within me as well, because I remember looking at him and thinking if the parent child relationship is supposed to emulate and simulate the God, the relationship that we have with God, do I love my child how God loves me or how my parents love me? Because it became very apparent in that moment that they were two totally different types of love. So, um, yeah, so I had my son um, and my mom made it very clear that she was interested in not being a grandmother, but just being the mother and taking over. <laughs> and for the, longest, <laughs> for the longest time, I let her because it, it we're bonding. Now that I'm a mom, she'll, you know, take me under her wing and teach me how to be a mom. Oh gosh. If I could talk <laughs> to my past, if I could talk to my past self and just be like, girl, don't do it. Um, so yeah, I let her, you know, just run rush out all over my my life and my motherhood for almost two years until I was pregnant with my second. So there was one car ride where, because we carpool, y'all we carpooled and that was just terrible. There were, there were so many things that I did that I, I, they just had complete control over my life, but we'll, I'm sure get into that. We were carpooling and my mom said, oh, just wait until your daughter gets here. You think you love your son? You'll love her even more. I know I will. And I was like, what? <laughs> what, what, wait. And so one thing with, you know, narcissism, since you both are familiar with it, is they love to create that golden child scapegoat dynamic, right? Yes. And so that was her admission right there that she was planning to scapegoat my son as soon as my daughter got there. And I just remember having that moment of like mama bear, just like, no, it's not, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that, what my childhood was like play out for them. So um, I went low contact for a little bit. Um, and around the time that my daughter was about two and a half months, um, (laughs) my family had a get together, um, that I was invited to. It was going to be me, my husband and my two little babies, a two-year-old and an infant. And they invited my ex-boyfriend to the family gathering. 
my ex-boyfriend who was abusive, who they just loved, right? Because it, he treated me like crap, which just reaffirmed to me that I was crap so that I wouldn't question how they treated me. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband was sick. So we ended up not going. And I remember feeding my baby at like 1 a.m. and scrolling through fe- Facebook and thinking I just scrolled past a picture of my sister and my ex-boyfriend and just being like, no, I'm just delirious from the sleep deprivation. And then just being like, oh no, that is really them. And my husband saw the pictures and was like, they will never love me. And just seeing the hurt in his face was really the final nail in the coffin. And we went no contact then. I was just like, I refuse to let you feel like you're less than because they're deficient. Like the deficiency isn't in you and me knowing what that felt like. Um, So it's really interesting that going no contact initially wasn't for me. I did it Mm. because I could see that they were going to try to replay the scapegoat golden child dynamic in my kids. And I could see how they were hurting my husband because he treated me with decency and love. And it went against the narrative that they had taken so much care my entire childhood to craft for me. So that's when I, I went no contact. Um, And uh, like I was telling Angeska, this year, it'll be eight years. I've learned so much (laughs) in those, um, in those eight years. And, um, I do not regret my decision and would do it all over again, but sooner if I could. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That really sounds, again, there's so many similarities, especially with the final straw being for somebody else. And I think that when you're you know, you've been groomed to play a certain role within a narcissistic family and you have all these messages that you've been told from the youngest age. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're you trained not to advocate for yourself. But then when you start to see somebody else, and for me, I mean, I used to always say to myself is like, why would I let my parents have a relationship to my children that they're not interested in having with my wife? You know, they just wanted to push my wife away and then have a relationship directly to my kids. And then, you know, when I, when I started seeing things are happening, they want to have this certain control at a young age to form my children into what I had. And that's when it was like, even though I didn't know exactly the depth of, of my pain at that point, something within me, it was just this gut wrenching, absolutely no way in hell will you do that to my kids. And that ended up being such a powerful force uh, through like, I had like weird dreams and different things like that. And just like, I didn't, I, I couldn't interpret it. I couldn't explain it, but I was just like, it, I can't, they cannot see my kids. So I just resonate with that. There's just, there's this, this sense that we have that, and it, I've wondered this, I'll ask you this. Where do you think that sense comes from? Is it from our genes? Is it from God? Is it from angels? Where does it come from? Because our, our childhood were so fucked up. Well, some would say Satan. I mean, honestly, that's it's a great question, Josiah. And it's one that I still, to this day, don't fully understand, right? Because there are so many people in my family Um, who are very much aware of the toxicity and very much fine with all the, you know, abuse that's going on and they don't mind letting their kids be abused. And so I don't know what it is that's different about me that made me just be like, absolutely not. 
Because it's like you said, in that moment, I hadn't even really had a chance to fully process all the trauma that I had been through up until that point. So I can't even say it was just something where it was like, you know, I fully realized my trauma and that was the reason why I did it. No, it was just very much like, you are not going to treat my kids this way. You're not going to treat my husband this way. It's just, I won't let it happen. No, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would love, as I mentioned before, there is so little information or there's information, but there's so little knowledge about narcissistic abuse. Um, And I've heard you mention a few things with the golden child and um, a different definition of love. Can you just go into what is narcissistic abuse and how did that touch you? Oh boy. So narcissistic abuse is, is so sinister. I'm sure, you know, Um, and it, it's, different from other kinds of abuse, just in the way that it makes you doubt yourself. Like going no contact was kind of like coming out of brainwashing, if that makes sense. I don't know if you can relate to that. Yeah. Um, And so it very much was my parents from the beginning had constructed this role and this idea that I was to uphold no matter what I was to be seen and not heard. Um, I, was not allowed to be who I am. You know, it's, it's having that predetermined path of because, and here's the kicker for me, my grandmother is also narcissistic. So my mom knows very well what it's like to have a narcissistic mom. Um, and so because of that pattern that had just gone through my family, excuse me, my mom forfeited her life to my grandma. And so it was predetermined before she even had me that I was going to follow suit and and forfeit my life to my mom. And so narcissism, they don't care at all about your feelings. Everything is just a piece of this game that they get to play. Every person is not seen as a person, but an object to them. And they see them in terms of what can you do for me? So when people are like, oh, I'm sure your mom loves you. I don't think she does. My mom doesn't know what love is. Does any narcissist really know what love is? Well, most signs point to no. Um, So I think that that is one of the hallmarks of being a narcissistic abuse survivor is just really understanding that this is the person who, especially if it's your parent, who is supposed to love you the most. This is the person who was supposed to bring you into this world for love but you were brought into this world for an agenda theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I heard two things, uh, two things I want to draw from that. First of all, I want to say thank you for being a cycle breaker because there are people, you know, there's a phrase that gets thrown around. I think it's from Oprah hurt people, hurt people. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to give us compassion for abusers, or I don't know what the intention is, but sometimes people say, well, you know, they're hurt because they were hurt. Guess what? we were hurt too. And then we decided to to change the cycle. Exactly. Fuck you. If you tell me that (laughs) abusers, that I should have compassion for abusers because it was fucking hard to change, but we did it. Other people didn't change. They could have, they could have, but they took their wounds and they decided to wound other people until somebody stood up and said, not with us here. It ends here. Mm -hmm. We're going to make a change. So thank you for being that change for the next generation. The other thing I want to just mention is um, this concept of love. And I want to come back to this. I'm, I'm going to ask you 
what is love for a narcissist? Because there is this biological, you know, we are biological creatures and Mm -hmm. most of us have empathy. Empathy is something naturally that, that bubbles up in certain situations, but it seems as though some people through the trauma that they've experienced and what they've chosen to do with it, they don't have that empathy. And so love for them is something different. What, what does love look like for a narcissist? Um, well, for my mom, love is very much control. Um, it, her affection was absolutely tied to my willingness to let her do whatever she wanted with my life, which is why whenever I dare to have a thought of my own or want to do something different to veer off her predetermined path for my life, um, those were the moments where she got the most vile because she needed to control me. I needed to do what she said. Absolutely. No matter what. And that's why I said, you know, I was not brought into this world for her to love me because she doesn't know what love is. I was brought into this world for her to have an agent that she can control. And that's why I was not going to let that, you know, play out with my kids. And so to go back really quick on the cycle breaker thing, um, there are so many toxic people in my family and I see it play out with their kids. Well, I saw it cause I haven't seen them in, in eight years, but I saw it play out with their kids. And for the longest time that really hurt me to think that my mom could have broken this cycle, but didn't mm-hmm. to think that I could have had a healthy, loving childhood, but that's the difference in narcissism. And that's something that kind of helped me come to terms and have a little bit of peace about that about the abuse that I suffered is there was no way she was going to change because narcissists are incapable of change. So even if her mom wasn't, you know, as vile as she was, there's still no guarantee that my life would have been any different. And so it really kind of helped me put things into perspective of, okay, instead of lamenting about the childhood that I could have had, how about I take that energy and focus on this is the childhood that I did have. These are the deficits that that created and healing those areas so that I don't pass on that same trauma to my kids. So that really just became, you know, a really big force in my healing journey was making sure that my kids, you know, I'm not the reason my kids are talking to a therapist one day. (laughs) That's like like something that I, you know, I, my husband and I talk about all the time. It's like, I, I refuse, I refuse to be the reason that my kids don't think as highly of themselves, why they have a jacked up definition of what love is, what happiness is, and end up having to go to a therapist to say, okay, let me tell you about my mom. Like that, yeah. is, something that, <laughs> that is something that is a, a driving, a driving force to me. And so, you know, I don't mind my kids seeing me be triggered by something. You know, my oldest is getting old enough to kind of understand he's special needs. He's on the um, spectrum. So uh, he has his own kind of, uh, dysregulation around emotions, but still like if I see something and I cry because I'm still, I still am triggered by things even eight years after the fact. Um, And I've noticed, especially being a mom with each new phase that my kids are in, it brings on a new trigger or a new area um, of my trauma that I need to work through. So I don't let mine, let my kids know that I talk to my kids about how my parents are toxic um, in language that they can understand they were really young when I went no contact. So it's not like I had to really put a lot of effort into my explanations back then. But what I've learned is, you know, just because we went no contact when they were kids doesn't mean they're going to stop asking about them, especially because my in-laws are in our lives. So 
they still ask and I have no qualms about telling them and we talk about abuse and we talk about consent and we talk about boundaries. And um, these are just all things that I didn't have. And so instead of being, you know, really, really depressed about the fact that I didn't have that, I really take pride in creating that for my kids. I, I really like that and resonate with that. Um, I know for me, as my kids get older, it really triggers or like brings flashbacks about my childhood at those ages and how my childhood was at those ages. And I was like, I cannot believe that those things were said to me at that age. I would never dare to do that to my own kids. Um, and it <laughs> it's really as my kids grow older that I'm really faced with a lot of my childhood traumas to deal with and process. It's kind of interesting to hear you say the same thing. It's mm-hmm. validating. It's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I love the post you did recently on your Instagram page, po- um, page about like age appropriate explanations for going no contact. I thought that was really good. And I wanted to highlight that. Um, and I loved how at the and like the, the oldest ages, you, you emphasize how it's important for them to know because our narcissist parents will try to contact them as they get older. And they need to know that these are not safe people. And I thought that was really important because it's kind of easy and what we're trained for to not bad mouth, mm-hmm. to not speak mm-hmm. negatively about our yeah. family. Um, but they need to know that. And that's something we're still we're only a year out from it, a year and a bit out from going no contact. So, and less than that for going low contact for me. So it, we're still navigating that one with our kids. We're still not entirely sure how to talk about them now. So I really like that post. Um, Would you like to go into that for our listeners, the stages of it? Oh, I don't (laughs) Okay, so thanks for bringing up that that post and Jessica. It was really important to me to create just because it was something that I was navigating myself. Even though my kids were young when we went no contact, um, I found that as they get older, they still ask about my parents. Hey, mommy, do you have parents? Um, <laughs> because my in-laws are in our life. And so they ask, you know, why don't you have parents? And when I tell them I do have parents, you know, why don't we see them? So the important thing when they're younger, um, like I said, my kids were, you know, two, two, two and a half ish and a baby when we went no contact. So there was no explanation. You know, they're too young to really even understand that they were missing from our lives. And at that point, we, we weren't seeing them much anyway. So you don't really have to worry about it. But I've noticed once you get to that, you know, preschool to school age. When you start talking about safety, that's when it's really important when you're talking about, you know, stranger danger or whatnot to really drive home that your parents aren't safe too, because you don't want them to think that should someone approach them and say, oh, hey, I'm your mommy's mom, that they will have that instant, you know, rapport and trust from your kids. And so Mm -hmm. it was really important. And we, we weave that into our stranger danger conversation was okay so also since we're talking about strangers this isn't necessarily a stranger to you because they're family but they're still not safe mm-hmm. and so really driving that home um once they were you know preschool to school age and then just really gauging because you know your kids best when they are you know how much of the conversation they're able to hear so as they get older just adjusting your explanation from there so my oldest is 10 
And we actually just had an incident yesterday where, because his birthday was this week, my mom sent birthday cards and, um, I opened them out of sight. Sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we handled that really quick before I get back to the explanations. Mm -hmm. So she sent cards. I'm assuming she sent 10, but we only got nine of them, which is just kind of like really, um, so to get nine cards in the mail, like (laughs) that's, that is abnormal, right? That just doesn't make sense, but she likes to pop up whenever there are great celebrations or things that she knows where I would be happy as kind of a ha. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't respond or whatever. So it's just a waste of her time. But yeah. <laughs> because my kids know, because we've been cultivating that conversation since we went no contact, when my son said, who are those from? And I said, my mom, he immediately knew you could tell in his face, like, okay, no, those are bad people. So I'm not even going to ask. And he didn't, he didn't ask to see the cards. Um, and the only reason why we even mentioned them was because I thought I had did it a better job of being out of sight when I opened them. <laughs> and my middle child, my daughter was over my, my shoulder and saw, and she's like, who are those cards from? And because, you know, my oldest knows his birthday was this week. He said like, are they birthday cards? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I explained like, yes, they're birthday cards, but they're from my family. And he was just immediately like, oh, that's okay. You can throw them away. And so things like that, nice. because we talk about how they're not safe. So once he gets older, I plan to, once all of them get older, actually, I plan to be a lot more forthcoming with what exactly it was that I experienced, because I know for a fact, as soon as each of them hit 18, my parents are going to ramp up. They're trying to contact them. Yeah. And so I feel like as, yeah, as, as parents, it's our job when we know that our parents aren't safe or our, any family member isn't safe. It's our job to prepare our children for that because I have read horror stories of people going no contact and not really talking about it to their kids. And so their kid turns 18 and decides they want to reconnect with grandma only to be abused. And that Mm -hmm. is absolutely not something that I would want for my kids. So even though it, it was very, Um, I had a lot of shame and fear initially around talking about it with my kids, just because like we all of us have said already in this, that there is very much a don't bad mouth, you know, what happens in my childhood home stays in my childhood home. And so you kind of have that, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Um, And then also a little bit of shame too, of just like, man, I can't believe my parents are so fucked up that I even have to talk to my kids about steering clear of my my parents was something that I, that I had to really navigate. But in the end, you know, wanting them to be safe is, is one of my, my chief concerns. And so it it was really important for us to, to talk about that with them. Mm. And so that's why I created that post because I'm, other parents out there who are trying to navigate no contact and really struggling with, well, what do I say to my kids? Do I tell them, you know, am I telling them enough of what happened to keep them safe? And so just really, you know, giving people that encouragement of, Hey, listen, you know, your kids best, you know, what they can handle and what they can't, you know, in, in the beginning, just make sure you, you keep it about safety and, and really drive home that they're not safe people to be around. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate the mm-hmm. post because it kind of gave me that little push reminder that I need to talk to my kids some more yeah. um, because it's easy for us to just, I don't know, out of sight, out of mind, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and it is hard to talk about. Um, 
But that was a very good reminder that, yes, you need to have a refresher talk here. <laughs> well, and then you, y'all are, you know, y'all have the benefit of distance. My, my toxic parents are 20 minutes away. You know, my yeah. mom has, has driven and, and shown up at my house. She showed up at our house last year. Um, so it's not just male. Um, but because my parent, my kids know that, you know, she's not safe. As soon as she appeared with a bunch of crap from the basement because they were remodeling their basement. And I'm like, lady, I haven't seen you in seven years at this point. I, give this shit away. Throw it away. Like, I don't, I don't care. My mom, um, my mom did but, exactly the same thing, which is why we're laughing over here. You got a bunch of garbage. We got a box in the mail, and it looked like she just dumped her like random drawers in the kitchen. You know that you have just random junk you threw in. It looks yeah. like she dumped it in a box and mailed it. To her. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like, throw it away. Um, but yeah, because they knew, like, okay, this lady isn't safe. My husband was like, go inside because they happen to be outside. Um, my husband was like, go inside. There's, there's your mom's mom. And they knew like instantly mm-hmm. she's not safe. Let's go inside. So mm-hmm. that's why it's important too, for me, because of proximity, there isn't an, an, a chance of her just stopping by or us just being out at the grocery store and potentially seeing, seeing them. So, you know, don't beat yourself up yourselves up too bad. You do have the benefit of distance. At yes. least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's helpful. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting. Narcissists, they all follow the same rule book. And when you start to study them, like when you mentioned the golden child, when you mentioned gifts, right away, I'm thinking, oh, okay, a narcissist giving gifts, that's about control. I can instantly know that. And this tactic of giving you a bunch of things that if you were to sort through all those things, you know, they would draw up these memories of the times when you were abused. So that's a tactic to draw you back into remembering what it was like and to have those same emotions so that you're weaker and, you know, just showing up on a, on a bright, sunny day that's exciting for you, like a birthday, because a narcissist hates when, when somebody that's within their control has, you know, is shining brighter than them. So they, they try and crash the party. Like all these mm-hmm. things you can, you can buy so many books. They all say exactly the same thing. So to yep. the point where you wonder, like, did all these people go to narcissistic college and they all came right. up exactly the same? Right. Like, like, <laughs> it, seems, it absolutely seems that way. So like talking about um, when people come to me and they're, they're fresh off going, no, no contact. And so we start talking about, you know, the enablers that'll come out of the woodwork and, you know, who will yeah. ask you like, Oh, can I have a picture of the kids? And you just know <laughs> they're going to send it on to your, your toxic family. Um, and you're right, Josiah, it does seem like they all kind of have that same playbook, which is why I think it's so interesting and important for us to talk about our experiences because, other people can see like, oh, it's not just me. Like my mom wasn't the only one that did that. And so that's why I try to be transparent and talk about things that I've, I have experienced because chances are, if you have a narcissistic parent, you've experienced it too. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not unique at all. (laughs) No. Can I ask you, what was it like to go no contact? Because when we say that, it sounds like, well, you just stop answering your phone. But you have to have a plan and then they're going to have a reaction and you have to do battles inside of yourself with all the messages that you've been told. So what was it like for you to go no contact? That is a great question. So going no contact for me, initially, I will say I thought it was going to end up just being low contact. So I already like I messed myself up out of the gate. 
because I was expecting it, it, no contact to not be permanent. I was thinking my mom was going to have some this some big epiphany that she'd miss me, um, that she'd miss having the kids in her life or whatever, and that she would then decide like, I'm going to apologize. I'm going to change my ways. And that was not the case. So I messed myself up there right out of the gate. Um, and so going no contact for me meant I changed my number. Um, and I filtered all of their emails so that none of them hit my inbox. I still have that filter on to this day because there would be nothing like me having a semi-decent day and opening my email and seeing a bunch of just toxic shit from my mom. So I really just was like, I'm going to filter it. So it doesn't even hit my inbox. It has, I have a special folder that drama that's a folder drama. Um, (laughs) Um, I would get to that point to where I would say, okay, I'll check this folder, you know, once a week or once a month. And now it's just like, I don't even, I don't even check it. I don't check it at all. Like, I don't, I don't care. (laughs) So, um, going no contact that changing my, my number and switching my email filters was very important right off the bat. What I did not expect, and I talk about this a little on Instagram too, was how many other people I'd lose going mm-hmm. in no contact. I was very much unaware of how many people benefited from me just keeping the status quo and keeping my mouth shut and just taking the abuse and staying in my dysfunctional family system. So there were so many people who would then come out of the woodwork and say, you know, oh, your mom loves you. Oh, you know, and from the religious aspect, honor your mother and father, you know, this isn't what God wants. And so that kind of really started the first kind of fissure in my faith, because if I, in order to gain God's favor, needed to stay in an abusive situation, is that a God I want to serve anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that just be, became a really big question for me in my faith in that moment. So um, going no contact is really hard. <laughs> if anybody says otherwise, that is not the case. And it's typically people who have not gone no contact who will say, it's not that hard. You just stop talking because there are so many just emotional layers that you have to go through, which is w- one of the things that I created was a no contact scale, right. For people to look at and say, okay, these are from my experience and other people that I've talked to, these are the phases that have gone through. So phase number one is, that guilt and shame. And that's really where you realize everything that you tried, all your boundaries that you've tried to lay, everything that you tried to kind of preserve that relationship didn't work. Because for me, my mom made it very clear, if I wasn't willing to have the relationship on her terms, we weren't gonna have the relationship at all. Um, And so that guilt and shame, and then also from the enablers coming and saying, you're dishonoring God, God would want you to forgive and forget like he forgave you. Um, So just so much guilt and shame around that. And then phase two is identity crisis. So have a narcissistic parent and you go no contact, you realize that everything you've done and everything you are up until that point has been in service to who they wanted you to be. As a people pleaser, you know, I, everything that I did, the college that I chose, the major that I chose, all those things were in service to her. And so once my sole purpose in life wasn't making her happy, well, what is it? Mm. And so just that, that identity crisis of who am I outside of her toxic influence because she had complete control over my life up until that point. 
So now I'm supposed to be in control. Well, I don't know how to do that. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I talk about self-trust a lot um, in my content is because you do have those moments where it's like, okay, wait, I'm supposed to be in control, but can I be trusted to be in control of my life? Because everybody's told me up until this point that I can't be trusted and that their way is better for me. And the only way I can live a life of meaning and purpose is if I do it how they want me to. And so, you know, self-trust is a real issue. And so that's phase two is identity crisis. And then phase three is that self-awareness where it's like, okay, I'm starting to realize things about who I am, the things that I like, um, some things that I don't like, uh, and just your toxic parents influence construction. Um, so not even necessarily from a faith standpoint, but just in phase two, as you're learning, you're learning who you're not. So there are things and ways that we have been raised and thought patterns that have been implanted in us that are not truly us. And we're just there to serve the purpose of control for you know, our parents to control us. And so stage four, phase four is deconstruction. And then phase five is that peace and contentment stage. Listen, there is no way of being hundred percent healed on this, on this journey. And the sooner, you know, people realize that the more freeing it is you're still going to be triggered. I'm eight years into no contact and I still get triggered. Um, but I know how to work through those triggers and I don't assign a moral value to them. I've noticed in some healing spaces that it's just kind of like, oh, if you're still triggered, you're not really healed. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, one, nobody can be hundred percent healed. And two, triggers are just information. That's mm -hmm. all they are. Triggers are just, you are realizing in that moment, this is something that is sparking a memory in me or an, you know, a negative emotion in me. And so now I know that I need to work on things around that pain. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so peace and contentment stage five is just realizing, you know, I'll never be a hundred percent healed, but getting so where you like the person that you are becoming, understanding that the work doesn't stop. It just continues and evolves. Um, but being willing to love yourself in that moment as well. Yeah. So that's, that's just a really quick overview of my no contact scale um, of the things that I've learned in my almost eight years of no contact. Can you just read over the, the titles of those five so I can just oh, put yes. them all in a list? I sure can. So phase one is guilt and shame. Yeah. Phase two is identity crisis. Yeah. Phase three is self-awareness. Phase four is deconstruction and stage, stage five is peace and contentment. Okay. So yeah. that's just my quick, my quick no contact scale that I came up, came up with. I'm somewhere in the middle, depending on the day. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh, that's absolutely normal. Because yeah. one thing that I learned, especially with phase four for deconstruction, once I started deconstructing my faith, it made me cycle back through everything, all the lower stages, because it was just kind of like, okay, well, if I am, you know, not a Christian, am I going to hell and having that like guilt and shame around it? Yes. And then like, okay, but then if I'm not a Christian, then who am I? So that self, you know, that identity crisis phase happened all over again. Um, and that's, that's yeah that's absolutely normal to to be in multiple phases at the same time to kind of cycle back through the phases and so healing isn't linear so no 
Yeah. And that's what they always say about grief as well. Like there's the stages of grief and the, and then the task oriented person says, well, how fast can I get through them? And when do, when do I know I'm done? But it's like, no, you, you keep going through them that, yes. that's, that, you know, um, and when we've been formed, um, like this post-traumatic stress, which I have an experience with, and then there's complex PTSD, which mm-hmm. is being raised in a situation which was unsafe and healthy and toxic so that our, our young self needed to develop coping strategies to stay alive and to thrive as best as they could. But you only have one shot at being a child. And those marks that are left on you as an adult, you can heal and you can change, but it, it'll never be as though you were raised by a healthy functional person. And yeah. so that can be a really dark message, but the bright side of that and the word I keep coming back to is post-traumatic healing in the sense that because that through our brokenness, we can, we, there's a certain sweetness, there's a certain strength, there's a certain power that we can have. And I think creating spaces like you've been able to create, you never would have been able to create that if you had a wonderful parent. That does not mean that what you went through is, is, it's not worth it, you know? It's, yeah. it's not as though we can have this black and white good Christian response. Oh, it was all for better good or whatever. It's not worth it, but there is something beautiful at the end of the tunnel. Um, and again, like it's not a black and white, like now I'm sick, then I'm going to be healthy. It's like, well, I'm mm-hmm. still going to be a human being that has good days and bad days. Still going to mm-hmm. have triggers. I'm still going to have bad memories, but I could be moving to a place where I'm, I think you said at peace with myself uh, mm-hmm. and, and I'm in a place of, of homeostasis and even uh, be able to help others and, and be, be that cycle breaker for others. Yeah. I think it was really important that switch that I had um, in my journey to where it became less about trying to understand my parents, trying to understand the, their brokenness and why that translated into them being narcissists and why they were toxic and why they treated me that way. Once I could shift from being focused on them, because I don't know about you, but my entire life has been focused on them and I was ready for a change. Um, Once I was able to focus on, okay, let's just focus on the impact that it's had on me and how I can take that heal as best as I can and make sure I don't pass that on to my kids. That really kind of started to really supercharge my healing journey because once it, when it was about them, it was just kind of like, Oh my gosh, why did I even do this? Why did I go? No contact. They might as well still be in my life because they're still controlling my every thought. Mm -hmm. It's like, they're still there because I'm still just so focused on why, who they, who they are made them do this thing to me. Mm -hmm. And instead being able to just say, okay, listen, they're broken. And it's not my job to try to understand or fix or heal their brokenness. All I can do is deal with it, their brokenness's impact on me and making sure I don't pass that on to my kids. Yeah. Do you think it's fair that that, that obsession is a necessary stage of healing? I do. I do. I just think it's important not to let that dominate. Yeah. We can't your healing journey can't because if, if the, if the, central focus just becomes how you got hurt then you're not even on a healing journey are you because if you're so focused on the hurt well then where does your focus for healing come from yeah you know what i mean can we talk uh, you've mentioned a few times the role that religion played and i have a master's in theology i was a bible school professor and um 
I'm deconstructing now. Sometimes people ask me, well, why don't you just go back on your teaching? Like, don't you know the answers to all these questions? Like, yes, I know too many answers. I know far too much <laughs> how when you get to the top, because, you know, when you're in the pew, you just get this idea that it's all handed down from God and this is how it is. But I, I was able to make up things that seemed, that it seemed like it made sense to me. Um, but basically it's like, it didn't exist. I sat down to write a sermon and then this idea existed. Like, like basically you can, like you can create theology, you can create beliefs and then you send them out. Uh, and there's kind of this organic network of, of pastors listening to what, like, it's all complex how it works, but it is a human process and we understand it. And when abusers get into the mix, they do create a system that enables their behaviors so how was religion used by your abuser to try and keep you in her orbit and to keep you from, and then, you know, to keep you from escaping and becoming the person you needed to be? Well, that, that foundation was laid from the time that I was a child and the, and honor your father and mother was their favorite, their absolute favorite verse. Whenever I did anything that they, um, did not agree with whenever I was not allowing them to have control. Um, they would always point to that one of you're being disobedient. You're not doing what God wanted you to do because you're not allowing us to control you because for them, you know, allowing them to control me was me being honorable and honoring them. Um, so yeah, that foundation was already, was already laid. Um, but when I went no contact, first I went low contact. I had a lot of people saying just that, honor your father and mother. This is not what God would want. Um, and it, it really caused so much shame in me because I'm like, God, I'm sorry that I can't listen to you at this point because I cannot, you know, there was a time that when I was a teenager, I struggled really heavily with suicidal ideation and I attempted suicide. And my parents would not let me go to a therapist because Jesus is our counselor. Mm. And so knowing that I was struggling so heavily with my mental health and my parents would hold up the Bible, my mental health struggles made me a bad Christian as though my mental health struggles meant that I didn't have enough faith. It, I really struggled with that. I really did. And so having that time after I went no contact where it was just like, God, I can't listen. I, I just, I can't listen to you. If, if you are telling me that I have to have my parents in my life, knowing everything that they've done and how they've treated me and knowing that they had such blatant disregard for my life that they wouldn't give me the mental health care that I desperately needed. Well, then I'm just not going to listen. I just can't. So if I'm in trouble and that condemns me to hell, so be it. Because I felt like I was already in hell in that moment. So it's just like, I, I just can't. And so that's why I talk a lot about how for some people going no contact is self-preservation because for some of us, the only way we feel like we will be able to continue to live is if we do it without our abusive parents in our lives. Yeah. So religion absolutely played a role in pretty much just, it was repetitive, right? Because out of your father and mother was pretty much what everybody said. It was like a broken record. Um, <laughs> can, I ask you, can I ask you something quick? Yeah. Did anybody ever recite the second part of that verse? No. <laughs> right? About do no not figure. do not exasperate your children and it, yeah. Do not exactly. provoke your children to anger. Yeah. Somehow no, it doesn't nobody, come up in the conversation. 
Isn't it funny though, how a lot of people will just bring up the parts of scripture that, that, you know, agree with them and the, the idea that they're trying to, um, exact from you in that moment. Like they won't bring up any scripture that might be contrary to what they're trying to say. They just bring up stuff that supports their view. Cherry picking. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty much the, the basis of it. Um, so I ended up needing to change churches. Um, and I, I attempted then after going no contact to see a Christian counselor at that church. And the only thing that she kept driving home during our first and last session was <laughs> how, how devastated she'd be if she couldn't see her grandkids. Oh, we heard the same thing. Like people being like, oh, if we allow you to go no contact with your family, then maybe our kids will do to us. We can't let you. <laughs> and it's like, it's not contagious. No, like, it's not. It's, it's not something where it's like I went no contact and now I touch you or I'm in your orbit and now you go no contact. No, it is 100 based on your behavior. If you don't treat your kids like shit, chances are they will not go no contact with you. And I heard that a lot too, where it was like, "What if your kids go no contact with you?" Yes, and I, yes. I always respond like, "If my kids felt like my presence in their life was a hindrance to the life that they felt they needed to live, I hope they go no contact with me." Yeah. If my kids felt like they could not continue living life as long as I was in it, I hope they go no contact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I'm working really hard and healing to make sure that that is not the reality. Yeah. So chances are they probably won't go yeah. no contact with me. Yeah. Um, because my behavior is a huge determining factor. Go exactly. figure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I've had a sibling kind of threaten that on me. It's like, oh, if you support our other sister getting married without our family there, because they had they were jerks towards her. Like, if you support her to do that, then your kids will do it to you. And I'm like, oh well. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't it funny too when you have siblings, how you both, I have a sister, how your childhoods can be so completely yes. different depending on whether or not you were the golden child or the scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't have a relationship with my sister either because as the golden child, she didn't see anything wrong with the way my parents treated her during her childhood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she wouldn't because she was a golden child. She was the one that was, you know, on a pedestal. And so she very, well, she's six years younger than me too. So she, was very much blissfully unaware of how terribly they treated me and sucks sucks to be her um that that's just my feeling of you know so that that's also what I say when I mentioned that I wasn't prepared for all of the people that I'd lose you know yeah. I was expecting it to just be you know my toxic mom but then you know my toxic dad showed himself to be the true enabler he was um, and my sister was also more than willing to, you know, being an enabler and a minion on my mom's behalf. And so tons of mutual friends, but it really just became a question for me of if I'm in a healed place, I'll do it alone. Yeah. Like, can it, if, if the place that I'm going to leads to healing, is it somewhere I'm willing to go 
all by myself. And granted, I have my husband and my kids, but as far as my family of origin is concerned, am I willing to completely walk away from my family of origin if it means that I don't pass on the generational wounds that I have to my kids? And my answer was absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll do it on my own. I'll do it by myself, yeah. but it needs to be done. Yeah, And it's good to be able to remind yourself of that. I think we need reminders as we go along. Yeah. And as, as these uh, abusers come back and pop in from time to time, which they will, trying to get mm-hmm. us back in, it's good to be able to look back and be like, no, this is a decision I made and this is why and stick to it. <laughs> yes, finding your why is really important. I know a lot of times people will use finding your why in terms of like your purpose and and things like that and, you know, picking a career. But I think finding your why is really important on your healing journey as well, because you will need that thing to cling to when you don't have any resolve and your abuser pops up and is like, hey, do you miss me? Yeah. Um, And you don't necessarily miss them, but you miss your sense of normalcy that you had when you allowed them to be in your life. And so you really do need to have that why that you can hold on to and hold up when you have those moments of you're considering potentially going back. And I mean, just being able to go look at my baby's faces would would typically just wake me right back up to like, oh, no, no, I can't. I can't. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so it's sad, but it's, it, we resonate again. We resonate so much of the story, but it is often a lonely journey. As much as people sometimes want to help a lot of the, the kind people don't understand. And then there's a lot of people that honestly are in some ways involved in the system because the sad reality is that abusers find abusers and they cut you off from people that could be your allies until you're in this bubble and and they find religious systems and they find other groups and perhaps it's, you know, runs in the family, they attract other families and it it all becomes this self-serving system where you do become an enemy if you step out. And maybe that is where that comes from this message of, well, then your kids will, maybe then my kids will. It's like, if somebody starts standing up to the abuse, then all the abuse are going to be held accountable. And if you're in a system mm-hmm. with a lot of abusers, then a lot of people have a vested interest in shutting that down. And yes. then it does create a lonely road because you just, you, you need to create your own community. And that's kind of where we're at is trying to, and we have a, a few great friends that we found along the way, but it takes time. It takes time. Oh, you yeah. have to get really lonely first. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That, that isolation is, it, I feel like it's an important, it's an important part and something that I noticed too that kind of exacerbated the isolation that I felt when I went no contact was I found myself holding up every relationship, every friendship that I had at that point and asking, is this person really connected to me or the person that I was pretending to be to placate my toxic mom? Yeah. So, so having that moment of like, you know, self-awareness and realizing that I am not this person that I have been projecting to the world. It was just really my mom's projection onto me that I was presenting. Like, as I started to come into my own, realizing like some of these people in my life are not in my life for me. They're in my life for who they thought I'd be. Because when I was easier for my parents to control, I was easier for other people to control too. Yeah. You know, that doesn't just, it's not isolated to just your parents, that people pleasing isn't isolated to just your parents. And so, yeah, I had a lot of people in my orbit. Once I started establishing boundaries, being like, hold up, wait, uh -uh," because I need you to be 
you know, I need you to, to please me. Like you can't be putting boundaries up with your parents because then you'll realize you need boundaries in every relationship. And I don't like that because I like controlling you too. Yeah. And so it, it, it is a lonely, it's definitely a lonely road. Um, but I feel like the relationships that I've made since I've gone no contact and really started to connect to who I truly am have been a lot more meaningful. They have, yeah. Because I, I feel like deep down, I kind of always knew I was playing a role. Mm-hmm. So those friendships always felt kind of surface level because I knew that they didn't really know who I truly was. Have you experienced that too? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's hard because I find a lot of our new friends are online and they're like on the other side of the world or the other side of the country. <laughs> yes. Um, because we have this unique background of being hyper religious and now stepping away from it and having this narcissism mixed into it. So it's like, well, at the same time during COVID. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Then COVID too. So it's not even like, Hey, let's, let's, you know, come on over for a glass of wine and let's talk about it. It's like, well, you know, let's chat about it on Facebook. It's like, oh, wow, it's not the same. Yeah. Um, but definitely as we do start to create these relationships, they are a lot deeper. I mean, so many of the relationships before were based on going to church together, basically, and having kids the same age, which I mean, it it is, it is, you know, when you start to find healing from these deep wounds, and then you find somebody else that's also found healing in the same ways, it, there is this authentic bond that is tremendous and, and can really, and then when it's like, this is who I fucking am. And if you're not okay with that, then get out of my life. <laughs> yes. And then somebody else is like, you know what? I like this version of you. Don't ever stop. And I'm like, you can stay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No? It's like, you can yeah. stay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It, and it just like allowing myself to be weird because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm neurodivergent. Um, I'm on the spectrum as well. And so I just found myself masking so much to be a normal person. And it's just like now the people in my life know I'm a weirdo. And that's awesome because I am and I have zero shame about it. Like I'm queer, being able to just be honest about who I truly am without feeling like, you know, I have this condemnation waiting and people who are going to be like, you're a sinner. Um, (laughs) Because you know, I have these people in my life who, you know, are deconstructing as well and, and not in the, the trenches of Christianity, which I will touch on really briefly is really hard because the black community is the highest religious, like the amount, the percentage of the black community that is religious is very high. It's like in the mid eighties. Wow. So finding people, finding people, and that's just from um, the Pew Research Center. I think they found it was like 84% of Black Americans um, identified as religious or Christian. Wow. And so it's it's been really hard and isolating in that instance, because since so many of my friends growing up were people that I met in church, once I decided to step away, like I lost those friendships as well. And I'm really new on my deconstructing journey. So I feel like we're kind of like, a little bit of the opposite as far as no contact and deconstructing because I've only been deconstructing for like a year. So I'm still very new. Well, and actually, same here. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and so it's just kind of like, uh, yeah. So some of the people who, who survived my going no contact and who understood who I am at that point, realizing they didn't really understand who I was either because they met me as a Christian and I'm not anymore. So kind of having to go through that 
additional pruning of my relationships because, you know, they knew someone who I truly wasn't either. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Um, can we pause really quick? <laughs> 